Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Jessica, welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Look, Sherry, Jessica's with us today. Awesome to have a guest. Thank you for... Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you. Good to see you. Uh, we, we, Sherry and I are big Jessica fans, and we're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going we're gonna to listen to Jessica's story, and there, there's a lot to be learned from Jessica's story, a lot that Sherry and I certainly resonate with, and we know our listeners will as well. And then we're going to make this awkward transition into something that's important to all three of us. So if you're listening to the Intoxicated Podcast, and you're a regular listener, we're going we're gonna to give you something a little different toward the end. And if you're a first-time listener, um, well, you won't know any better anyway. So that'd be great. <laughs> Jessica, so glad to have you. I want to start with a question. How did you originally find us? And when you first started listening to the Intoxicated Podcast, what attracted you to, to the conversations? Um, in the very beginning, I was looking for stories of people that I could relate to. I was looking for other people that had gone through or were going through what I was going through, um, in my family with my husband. Um, I just wanted to hear that I wasn't alone. I wanted to hear other stories, um, that had similar details, um, just so I knew that there were other people going through this and, and to know there are other people that had come out the other side of it, even more importantly. Um, I just, I just needed to feel like there was a community out there of people that I could relate to and that could relate to me and that I didn't feel so alone. And so when you started listening to the stories that we tell on the intoxicated podcast, you found that you resonated. Yes. You, you, your, oh, your yeah. situation was similar enough that this was this, we were your people and you were our people, right? Yes. Well, your, your story in particular, the two of you is so incredibly similar to this, what my husband and I have gone through our experience. And it was really validating for me to hear what you had been through, Matt, personally, and also to hear how, what Sherry had been through, you know, all the different emotions that Sherry expressed um, I could so relate to, and um, and there's also also something very healing about hearing her talk about this openly in front of you, knowing that she had gotten to a place where she could ex- express how deeply hurtful and traumatic what you guys had been through was to you, and you were hearing it and accepting it. That was very incredibly healing for me to hear that. That's great. That's great to hear. Before we started recording, Jessica, you expressed a concern to us that's the same concern we hear from almost every one of the guests that we have on um, about, you know, and it was about how is your story going to fit in this whole thing and what are people going to take away? Can you can you put a little color to that? Explain what your fear was before we started recording? Yeah, I I was super nervous to do this. Um, I. I had this overwhelming feeling of pressure, like I need to come on here and say something of such extreme value that somehow, you know, is life changing for someone like I need to be super wise and say important things. And 
So I was feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm not qualified to do this. And then I started thinking about the impact that your story has had on me, Sherry's story, other podcasts that I've listened to where people have shared their stories. And I realized that the thing that made the greatest impact and was the most healing for me was just hearing other people's stories, just hearing what people had been through, hearing that their challenges were similar to mine. And in some cases, people had been through far worse than I have ever been through. And, and just to hear that, you know, there are other people dealing with things similar to what I have dealt with and dealing with and to feel like I'm not alone in that and just to feel like there's hope. So I thought, well, if I can come on and just tell my story and someone else can relate to that, um, I'll feel really good about that. If, if someone can relate to me and feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not so alone in this, then I've, then I've done a good thing. And I, I look at it the way that I look at the fact that we foster dogs and you might hear them barking in the background. So I apologize for that. I can hear one of them sniffing at the door right now. <laughs> but, um, you know, people say to me, why do you, how can you foster dogs? You have to give them up when they get adopted. And that must be so hard. And I say, yes, it is. We love them dearly. But you know what? Someone fostered mine. We have a rescue dog and someone lived with my dog for like four months before we had her. And so we pay it forward by fostering other people, fostering dogs that other people can have. And that's how I consider this. I'm paying it forward for all the people that were brave and came before me and told their hard stories. I can do it too. Absolutely. Thank you for being vulnerable enough. I mean, we're off to a great start here because you're being vulnerable enough to explain what the, not only your fear is for coming on the podcast, but the very common fear that almost everybody else expresses as well. You know, what if what I have to say isn't, isn't enough? One of the things you said, you know, that people have faced far worse, you know, I think it's important that we hear all levels of story, just like for me, for the alcoholic to understand that the rock bottom for me doesn't have to be when I killed somebody in a drunk driving accident. My rock bottom can be way before that, hopefully. Uh, the same holds true for the relationship side and codependency and living with an alcoholic. You can put your foot down and say, that's enough. And I am done way before it gets to the worst of the worst cases. And it's just, you know, there, there's a healthiness, uh, an opportunity to save yourself early. If we tell those stories and don't just say, oh, you know, my story is not severe enough, so I'm not going to bother to share it. So I'm so, and you know, th there's a lot of trauma involved in your story. So I'm, the last thing I'm trying to do is downplay it. But at the same time, um, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, you know, it's only the really dramatic stories that are worth listening to. I think far, far, one of the things that we've learned, Sherry and I've learned in this, this process, doing this work, is that people constantly downplay their trauma and say, oh, you know, my husband didn't physically abuse me and he didn't leave and drain the bank accounts. So what do I have to whine about? No, no. I mean, trauma comes in many, many ways, shapes and forms, and it has to be processed, you know, regardless of how severe from a societal standpoint uh, it, it was. Trauma is trauma. And so I'm so glad that you're here to tell your story. Let's go ahead, let's, let's dive right in and start kind of from the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about the role of alcohol early on in your relationship with your husband, um, both from his drinking, your drinking, just kind of how did it start? Yeah, well, we had a lot of fun partying together <laughs> when we met. We were in our 20s. We were very, we were young. Um, he, you know, we had just, we weren't that many years out of 
college. Um, and we spent a lot of time having fun, drink, doing things. Everything we did had drinking involved pretty much. Um, if, you know, we, we did a lot of um, big trips with, fr with large groups of friends that involved lots of drinking. All of our holidays involved lots of drinking. Um, that's just the way we had fun. And I mean, not to say we didn't do anything else. Like we both, you know, he, he really enjoys golf. I really enjoy massages. <laughs> you know, I, I don't drink when I get a massage, but uh, he probably, he probably drank when he golfed for sure. But, um, you know, we have other things that we do, but by and large, that's the way we relaxed. That's the way we celebrated. That's the way we de-stressed. That's the way we did everything was to drink. And everybody around us did, did that too. And so it really wasn't, I didn't, it didn't seem strange. It didn't seem excessive. We were, you know, just young and having fun. Yeah, absolutely. Did, so when you had kids, was that a turning point for you the way it was for Sherry and I, where your drinking changed and his did not? Is it a similar yeah. story? Yeah, I would say that probably my drinking actually probably started to ramp down before we decided to have kids um, because we made several moves to different states um, in the early part of our relationship and there were new jobs and big, you know, buying homes and big, you know, those big early life stressors early, you know, and um, and I noticed that was the first time that I noticed that his drinking was not just for fun. I, he would come home from work and pour several heavy drinks and get really intoxicated after work. And this was just when it was the two of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had some conversations around that and he, you know, acknowledged that that probably wasn't the best. And, um, and I, you know, there was like that weird warning flag that goes off in the back of your head. And the, and the reason that happened for me was because my dad's an alcoholic. I was raised in an alcoholic household. And so the whole like drinking after work thing, using it to, to relax was something that my dad did. And I was, I had that, this weird, like feeling in my gut of, oh, what does this mean? But I just, when I talked to him, my husband, and I said, this is an issue. And he said, yes, you know, I'll, I, I see that. And I just, I just squashed it. Like, okay, this is going to be fine. And uh, so then, yeah, we decided we wanted to start having kids. And of course, in that process, it was really important to me that I make sure that I was really physically healthy, um, you know, to make sure that the health of the baby was, you know, there was no questions about that. So yeah, I know I stopped drinking, um, you know, before I got pregnant and then of course through the whole pregnancy and then, you know, while you're breastfeeding, I didn't drink. So, um, I, and then once you have a baby you're taking care of and responsible for, even if you're not breastfeeding, like the last thing I'm going to do is drink a bunch because I can't be hundred percent there for my kid. And I just wasn't going to do that. So, um, you know, I run really anxious. And so the last thing I'm going to, you know, and so I'm, I'm like a hundred percent, like this child needs to be protected at all times. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I can't possibly do that. So, you know, I, my attitude towards alcohol changed at that point. Like it wasn't, that wasn't something that really made me feel relaxed. It actually made me feel more stressed because I didn't feel like I could be the best parent that way. Thank, all I can say is thank God women have babies instead of men or I don't know, fetal alcohol syndrome and all kinds of things after birth would, would be bad because I remember when we had our first, 
I was like, great, we got a baby, like, cheers, let's okay. drink to that, it'll be fine. I, it never occurred to me, but, but so many people that we've spoken to, and I know this was your feeling too, Sherry, uh, feel the same way you do, Jessica, that somebody's got to be alert and ready to go at all times. And I just never had those, those worries. I, I, I don't know. I thought everything would work itself out. And how hard can a baby be? These really naive, um, you know, not very good co-parenting, that's right. for sure. Well, and then I always think of the nights before we had our children. Like, I think the first one, you were probably not drinking that much because your mom had come into town. Or no, with the second one. Your mom. talking about the second child? Yeah, second child. So then I think, oh my gosh. Our third child, I don't even know if you probably should have legally been driving. It was during yeah. the holidays and you were, you had drank, you know, with your, cause your parents were in town. And... One, one of my biggest of my many regrets is that I had alcohol in my system for all four of their births. And the story is different with each one of them. Um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a good thing that men don't have the babies. That's, uh, that's all I can say. Um, so talk about, so during this period, uh, leading up to pregnancy, pregnancy, birth, early child, early having a child, what's, what's Sean, what's your husband's alcohol consumption look like at that point? I think it was, you know, he, for as long as we've been together, he's been a very regular drinker. Um, I think around that time, you know, like I said, right in the early beginnings of our marriage, he, I noticed he was drinking every night after work. And I think that what he did was he just shifted to wine and beer instead of hard alcohol. And he continued to drink every night. And that, did that make you feel, became, did that make you feel any better at all? Like to at least say, okay, you know, the poison he's choosing is the lesser of the poisons. Yeah. It's weird that it did. Um, it did. I guess I was more comfortable with it's we I don't know if there's like some societal thing but when you see person pouring a really heavy drink you think oh that's a red flag but if they're just drinking a beer it's not as alarming which shouldn't be the case but I have to admit that that it was for me that I did feel better that it was wine or beer and also it makes it it's harder to notice how much they're drinking when they're doing it that way with the hard alcohol you can see a whole bottle disappear whereas I don't know the beer. I don't know whether the beer he's holding is the same beer he was holding an hour ago. I, I think it's totally a societal thing. And, you know, it ties right into the idea that people say, you know, uh, they, we talk about alcohol and drugs. Well, alcohol is a drug. It's not, they, they shouldn't be separated like that. Oh, you know, it's just a little weed and a little alcohol. Who cares? At least it's not crack and meth. Um, well, in your brain, they, they work in similar ways. So, we've got to stop doing it. And I think we do the same thing within the alcohol category. I know as a drinker, I, whenever I would start to be concerned myself, I would switch to, I'm only going to drink beer and wine. If you know, I'm not, I'm going to stay off the hard stuff. And certainly it doesn't hit you as fast, but you can still get in a ton of trouble with beer and wine. But I think you're spot on that societally, we look at that like, Oh, this person's in control because they're not drinking a fifth of vodka every night. So I think your reaction there is totally, totally normal. And you, I mean, Sherry, there were periods where I was drinking only beer and wine and you knew it and you were thankful that I at least wasn't drinking hard alcohol, right. even though um, I could still get pretty well obliterated on yeah. beer and wine. Yeah. Especially if you mix the two, like when you would have beer all day and then you would have wine with dinner. Yeah. Was, wine did something different, but yeah, I was like, well, 
at least it's not like you were saying, you can see the bottle diminish. And I knew that your, you know, gin or vodka on the rocks was mostly gin and not any mixer. So yeah, it wasn't a big fan of the tonic water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so did you have a period when he, when he's drinking beer and wine and even though it's daily where you kind of didn't talk about it, like it wasn't an issue, you just kind of. Oh, absolutely. We didn't talk about it for years. I, um, one of the things that is really important, I think, for people to know is that my husband's an incredibly high functioning alcoholic. He is, he's very successful. He has always done really well in his career. He, it isn't, it didn't impact him in a way that was visible to the outside world until about two years ago. And I've known him since 1996. So it was a very long time for him to drink in a way that was detrimental to him and to our family, but that nobody could see. Um, you know, going back to the, the societal impact on this whole thing, in society, we, we take our cues as far as what success means, you know, from career, right? Uh, how are we doing career-wise? Are we getting promotions? Are we getting raises? Are we successful financially? And as long as those things are going fine, then, um, you know, whatever we're doing to medicate ourselves in the evening doesn't, doesn't raise flags, at least for us ourselves, you know? So you say, yeah, I drink every day, but I also, you know, just got a promotion and look at this beautiful new house we're moving into. And I mean, there's just, there's nothing to draw attention to it, even when it's starting to get out of control because we're holding everything else together. And yeah. it sounds like that was exactly your situation. Yeah, externally, it looks great. Yeah. From the outside, you look like you're doing everything you should. And you're not, you know, you don't have DUIs. You haven't wrecked the car. You haven't been arrested for public intoxication. You haven't left the kids, you know, hanging after a sporting event. They're, you know, picking them up from practice or something. So... So even when there are no outward signs and career-wise he's doing great, was it having an impact on the relationship at this point? Oh, absolutely. Because um, it completely changed his demeanor and his mood. It, um, so there's this really insidious thing that happens with alcohol where people use it to manage their depression, their anxiety, um, whatever. It's a coping mechanism. And while when they first get that drink on board, it does soothe them and make them feel better. But then there becomes this vicious cycle because one, your body starts adapting to it. And so you need more and more to get to that. And two, as you start wearing off, those, those things come back like in droves. So not only does it exacerbate your anxiety and depression, you're also now creating a situation in which you're becoming physically dependent. And so, and and different people do that over a different period of time. What, that's what I've learned is that some people take that track really quickly. They move to a place of being really um, dependent really quickly. And some people do it really slowly over time. And, and my husband took a track that was slow. And um, so it happens, you, can't, you don't necessarily see it happening in front of your eyes. And the other thing is that he, holds his alcohol really well. And that's another sign of an alcoholic is that he can drink a lot and you can't tell if you don't know him really well. And so one of the things that has been hard in all of this is when I when I have started to be honest with close friends about what has happened and what is happening, so many of them have expressed 
shock that my husband's an alcoholic because they said they, they, they couldn't tell. And, um, and that's because one, they don't see what happened. They didn't see all the drinks he had before we got to the party. And then all the drinks he had after we got home from the party. And the other thing is that they can't, they can't see that he was completely hammered the whole time they were talking to him because he comports himself in a way that doesn't look like he's particularly intoxicated. And that's another sign of a alcoholic. So what did that do to you, your own like mental health and self-confidence? If you, if you're, if you know, there's a problem, but he's, you know, hiding it from everybody else. Uh, you've got to be just full of self-doubt for, for the very thing that you're seeing. Like you got to wonder it, maybe he is fine. Maybe I'm the one that's crazy, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's the thing that's done the most damage to me is that over, you know, I would say there was an eight year period where I first started to say, this is really a problem. I think that you have a problem. This isn't good for our family. And, and he either denied it, um, said he would do something about it, didn't do something about it, then said it wasn't a problem or that it was, sometimes the uh, response was that it was me, that I had a problem with alcohol and that was my problem and mm. that alcohol worked for him, that it was the one thing that made him relax. It was the one thing that made it less stressful. There's a whole other layer because my he's the primary breadwinner in our family. And um, so he has the financial stress on him. And so he would say, I'm very stressed. I'm the one who makes the money and makes sure that we have a, you know, a place to live and food on the table and that the family is safe. And this is the one thing that makes me feel better. So kind of like, you know, get off my back about this. You don't make the money in the family I do. And he didn't say that, that like that, but that was the way I heard it was, hey, I'm working really hard for this family, like back off. And, um, and I think because somewhere in me, I feel guilty that I don't have a, tr I, I don't, we aren't a dual income family. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm successful in and of myself. I'm an attorney. I worked part-time, you know, it's not like I don't provide for the family too. It's just that he, his job is the one that really pays our bills <laughs> sure. because that's the agreement we made that I was going to mostly just, you know, be here to make sure that the kids take care of the kids, get them to and from school, get them to and from their activities, take care of the house, do that. That was the agreement we had. But for some reason, I also made myself guilty about, I feel guilty about that. Well, and that, that's a hard job in and of itself, taking care of the kids and making sure they're off to a healthy start. But when you pile alcohol on top of that, it makes your job doubly hard because you start to, to feel the way you do about the relationship and about the drinking. And even if, even if you and Sean aren't necessarily fighting in front of the kids, um, it changes your mood. And then you've got to lift yourself up to a place that you're not really in front of the kids to, to put on these, you know, this face that doesn't really exist. Yeah. I mean, I know um, that was one of your biggest challenges, yeah, Sherry. It's, it's definitely a lot more stressful to like try to, you know, walk around the house with a fake smile on your face and, and you overcompensate. And then you feel guilty because you feel like I'm not providing for the kids because here I'm in this, you know, this relationship with this alcohol and their dad. And so you're overcompensating and it's just this terrible, vicious cycle. It is a vicious cycle. And there's also this huge stress that goes on. Sherry, I don't know if you felt the same way of 
which is more harmful to my children staying in this or getting mm -hmm. out of this and absolutely and then there's also the added layer of i took a vow for better or for worse and i didn't don't didn't enter into my marriage lightly so what part of the for worse is more than I am willing to put up with and or is not healthy or is not the right choice and trying to figure that out is really really difficult and um and it ended up that for me I I needed it needed to get really badly bad before I said I can't take this anymore mm -hmm. and um you know we we talked about it over and over and over for eight years as it got worse and worse and worse. And, um, and one of the things that I, that I wanted to convey in this, I mean, maybe we should go back and finish my story so that it makes sense what I want to say, but basically as the kids got older, the drinking got worse. Um, we had many arguments about it. Um, he, he, he did all the things that you read about. He, changed what he was drinking it was only going to be beer or it was only going to be wine or he would only drink non-alcoholic beer at a certain point or you know there was all that like trying to what like put, put rules around the drinking putting, was... yeah putting rules around the drinking to try to manage it and um and about, and about two years ago um i noticed that it seemed like we, he had moved into a place where he was just miserable all the time like he just, it seemed like he was depressed and anxious. And he told me that he was depressed and anxious all the time. And the whether he was, was drinking or not, when he was yeah. in the sober hours as well. Yeah. Well, you're and, right. We do have the exact same story. Um, but yet he wasn't willing to give up the drinking. He, he would have moments of clarity where he'd say, I need to, this is a problem. But then it's almost like there would be an amnesia about it, or he would, it would, he would say, maybe it was just, he was, he was so afraid of giving it up because it was the one thing that made him, that he did think made him feel better. And at well, least it had. That, I mean, that's exactly it. That, that's what's so diabolical about this. It's so counterintuitive. It's the only thing that makes you feel better. You feel terrible most of the time except for maybe at the beginning of when you start to drink, but then even when you're drinking, you start to feel terrible as well. But it's the only thing that gives you any relief. So it's the last thing you think you're going to remove. Um, I know I had lots of times where I felt like I overconsumed, and I said, I got to fix that. Mm -hmm. I've got to not drink so much, but I can't not drink because the drinking is the only thing that makes me feel okay. Did you guys have conversations like that, like about the amount as opposed to just stopping altogether? Um, I don't think, I don't think we did have conversations like that. I mean, I, you know, because I'd been through what I'd been through with my dad, I, I knew for a long time that what he really needed to, what my husband really needed to do was give up drinking and he didn't agree. So it really wasn't about how much you drink. It's about the fact that you probably shouldn't be drinking. And that wasn't a conversation we could easily have because we had diametrically opposed views about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, the thing that I think the thing that made me feel like it, you know, that I that I didn't reach my bottom it was that I always felt like the kids and I always came first. Like I didn't feel like the drinking ever came before me and the kids, and that changed. 
in 2020. Decisions started to be made that put our family at risk. And I don't, you know, what I mean by that is his job performance started to suffer because he was too drunk or too hungover to get on a work call. He, um, what started happening was he became so physically dependent that he would wake up in the middle of the night in a panic attack. And what I didn't realize was that he was going through withdrawal. He was telling me he was having panic attacks. I thought it was related to stress at work, but it was actually the fact that he had developed such a high level of dependency. And so think, so in that then, you know, impacted his ability to be available to me and the kids that affected his ability to be available um, for work. And in April of last year, our, our youngest was hospitalized with a very, with rhabdomyolysis, which is a very rare complication of, that you can get from working out. And I, so he, so my husband was home with our other child while I was in the hospital with our youngest. And I think the drinking escalated there because that was the way he dealt with the stress. And by the time we got to summer, he was so physically dependent that um, he was sick all the time. And um, he ended up going to detox. He came home from detox. Um, and that's when I put my first real limit on him. And I said, he came home from detox and he sat me down and he literally looked me straight in the eye and he said, I intend to keep drinking non-alcoholic beer. And I said, and to me, non-alcoholic beer is a gateway to real beer. Like that just in my mind, I knew it was a crutch he always used. And I said, no, I don't want anything in this house. I don't want alcohol. I don't want anything pretending to be alcohol. And that was the first time I ever drew a line and created a boundary. And then things just escalated from there. I think because I had started to put down boundaries, he then started sneaking alcohol. My, our, one of our kids caught him sneaking alcohol in the garage. I mean, it, it just escalated from there to the point where he was um, sneaking alcohol and passing out in the backyard, passing out in the back, in the back of the house. And he eventually went to rehab for a month, came home um, and started drinking within a week. He was actually going to an outpatient program that had a liquor store across the street and was going across the street, to get alcohol while going to the outpatient program. So um, it all culminated on um, Halloween with him hitting this major bottom where he had been drunk for two days straight. He had driven his car that way and he then started to have suicidal ideations and tell me that he wanted to harm himself. And at this point, I had kept it secret from almost everybody. Um, my family knew, I had a close friend I had confided in, but no one in his family knew. And at that point, I had been holding the burden of this for so long all by myself and trying to make it work and trying to be everything for our family and for our kids while he was struggling with this. And I just, I needed somebody else to be there with me in this. And so I told his family and all of his friends, he, he's not, you know, we live on the West Coast, he's from the Midwest, all of his family is in the Midwest. So we don't see his friends and family, you know, his childhood friends and family a lot. And, um, but I just went and told them. And that was, I think the thing that really helped because everybody then kind of, because once everybody knew he couldn't deny it anymore. 
That, that must've been terrifying for you though, to make that step. I mean, on the one hand, you've got a husband who's considering suicide and you can see the downward spiral, like it's undeniable to you. But on the other hand, you're going to expose this. And he's like, you said, the breadwinner and you know, there's gotta be some career implications to how much you expose it. Um, but you're going to expose it to good friends and family. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine how terrifying that must've been for you. You must've been relieved when it would turned out to be the right thing to do. But in the moment, were you just scared to death to be exposing all this to people? Oh yeah. I knew that the potential backlash from my husband was really real. I knew that he could potentially be very angry with me. And I actually, the, the scariest thing that I did was that once I got him to the hospital and got him checked in and um, his brother flew out to, to help me so that he could be with him at the hospital and I could be home with the kids. Um, and I realized that even in that moment, after going through rehab, after coming home, after relapsing, after going back to detox, going back to the hospital with suicidal ideation, he still wasn't really admitting that he had a big problem. He was, I was saying, you need more help. You need to go back to rehab. And he was not agreeing with me. And I was terrified at this point that he was going to lose his job because he had taken a month off for rehab. He had, and he needed to go to rehab again. That's two months away from your job. And he had, and his job didn't know. And what was happening and I was afraid and I know that this is you know this is a covered disability you, you can't be fired once your job knows that you have that you're dealing with this so um I made the scariest decision I've ever made which was that on the day he was getting discharged from the hospital and coming home I called his work and I told them wow Wow. This is, this is the discharge from the hospital after detox. That's af after the Halloween. Yeah. Um, this was the first of November. I called, I called his work and I told them because he needed to go back to rehab and we needed his insurance and I didn't want him to lose his job. And I knew, I knew at that point that he could potentially divorce me because he'd be so angry because his career and his um, the way he was perceived was so important to him. He felt like being an, being an alcoholic was it, just the word still bothers him. He feels such shame around that. So, but he gets, gets so much of his identity from career. I'm sure. Yes. I know that's the way I felt and you're threatening you know, it's so funny. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but when, when I talk to people who are interested in joining our shout sobriety group for people that are in early recovery from alcoholism, there, there is a gender difference. And I don't, I'm sorry that I'm dwelling on gender a little bit on this episode, but it's, it's undeniable. I'm not a sexist. I'm not saying, you know, that the way I, I'm not, I'm not drawing these differentiations because I'm saying one is better than the other, but, but the differentiation is there. The gender difference is there almost exclusively the initial phone conversations that I have with people that are entering shout sobriety. If they're male, the conversation 
centers around career so much, I can't even tell you. And for the females that join our group, it's almost always a family conversation that we have. And so I knew that I carried a ton of my identity was career and success related, you know, traditional societal success related. And it's just fascinating to me that that is pretty universal, uh, especially among males. So you, you're taking this step that's going to threaten not just his job. You know, you can go get another job. His this is going to threaten his, his very identity, identity. His family relationships. So you know? that's got to be just terrifying for you. I can, and I think it's important that listeners hear this and hear, you know, as we continue to tell the story, because it, it's often a necessary step, even as scary as it might be. So, so what happened? What happened when you, did you talk to like his direct, his boss or did you talk no, to HR? No, I called HR. I called HR and I actually wanted to make sure that she, that they couldn't tell his boss. I wanted okay. to make sure that, um, that I could put in place whatever protections he needed for his job, but also, um, yeah, I just needed to make sure that they knew so that, um, his job would be protected. And so that, that, um, I could then potentially get him to go to rehab again. And he, his brother went and picked him up at the hospital and brought him home. And I told him that I had told his work and I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, you've just ruined my life. Yeah. Specifically to what we were just talking about. Oh, mm. could only imagine how that felt. And, and really deep down, you're just saying, I'm just trying to save your life. I'm just trying to save your life and save our family. Wow. And in, the end, in the end, I feel like telling his work was the hardest thing I've ever done, but it was also the most powerful thing because it was the one thing that he could look to and say, see, it's not that bad. This hasn't been impacted. And the fact of the matter was, it was being impacted. And he had a conversation with HR after that, where now they knew. And they encouraged him to get help. And he went back to rehab. He went to a new rehab. He went to an amazing rehab. Um, and it completely changed everything. It. Um, he now completely understands that he can't drink and that, uh, that he's an alcoholic. And um, so while telling his work was horrible, it, uh, I think it was the thing that saved everything. I can totally understand that. Cause he, he's got, you know, that, that's the one thing he's hanging on to yet that he's hiding it from. His family knows, you've told his family, obviously you both know that it's destroying your relationship, but the work doesn't quite know yet. And then when they do, you know, that house of cards falls too. And he's got nothing left to hide and he can focus on himself. Is that kind of how, how he, you know, felt yeah. about it? I think the, the wonderful thing about work knowing is, and he works for an incredibly progressive company. They really believe in employee wellness and um, they were very upfront with him that basically said, 
if you need to get treatment for something, go get treatment for something. And, but if you don't get treatment for it, your job is going to suffer and you might end up getting, you know, not no longer having a job, but if you get treatment, you know, the chances are everything's going to continue to be amazing. So, you know, you have a, you know, it's getting treatment is not going to impact your career, not getting treatment might. Yeah. So and has, how has that played out? He's, you know, we're several months um, past his rehab and he's been back to work. Has, has it gone? Okay. Um, yes. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, one, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, he's, we're all together all the time. So, <laughs> um, you know, jo- we're, life is still stressful. Giving up j- drinking doesn't make life just magically easy. You still have all the stressors that drove you to do whatever it is that you did to deal with life. So if you if you're like my husband, you drink. If you're like me, you problem solve for everybody else around you. And um, so we still have all those stressors that, and it's just learning a new way to deal with them. What What about the kids, Jessica? How have you communicated with the kids? Um, how do they feel about you know the process? How do you feel about their health? What can you say about that? Um, the kids have been, I think one of the thing that's caused me the most pain and distress that, you know, the whole time my main concern was how much is this going to impact them? And when they were younger, I was, you know, I I was, I was hoping they didn't notice. And as I got, as they got older, I was hoping that the, that maybe they missed some of the worst stuff. Um, but the bottom line is when you have someone, when you have substance abuse in the house, it impacts the energy in the house. It impacts the way people inter- interface with one another. It impacts what you can and can't talk about. And that had an impact on my kids. And we have had to deal with that. Um, both of them have had depression and anxiety um, we've gotten them support for that. Um, and we just, I just continue to, to, if I need to apologize where they feel I wasn't there for them or didn't make choices they wish I had made and try to explain where I was coming from. And so they understand and, you know, just continue to support them in whatever way I need, we need to support them and listen to them and whatever they need to say. The honest communication that you've had with them is really impressive. And Sherry and I both, you know, know that it's really, it's really, really important for, for the ability that you have to end the cycle here and not let this, you know, continue on in their adult relationships for them to talk about this and not just experience it, but, but to talk about it and to, to find the healing they need. I know one of the things that you shared with us was that in preparation for sitting down and talking to Sherry and I, you had a conversation with your kids and your husband. They all know that you're doing this yes. and, and they're supportive of, of it, right? Yes. My husband was very supportive of it. He, um, he knows that this is healing for me. He knows that um, 
it's important to me to talk about what happened. Um, uh, my kids were very supportive. They wanted me to talk about it. And it was actually really helpful because as I mentioned to you guys before we started recording, um, my memory is really fuzzy around a lot of this because there was so much trauma and like there was a six month period where every day felt like a, it was a fire alarm situation. Um, and this is this is what I wanted that I, what I wanted to say earlier, and I waited to say was that when you hear when you hear families say or you hear someone mention, oh, and so and so went to rehab, and that just sounds just that sentence sounds so innocuous. It sounds like oh, um, they weren't they weren't feeling that great, and so they went to this nice place where they had this peaceful time, and everything's going to be better now. And what I realized in having gone through what we've been through, at least for us, the process of getting to the point where you need to go to rehab is so incredibly chaotic and so stressful and so many scary, stressful things happen in your day-to-day -day life before someone realizes they need to go to rehab. That when you say, that just saying someone's going to rehab does not in any way encapsulate the experience or pain that that family went through. And so now I know when someone says that, that that family went through so much to get to that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not something anyone does willingly or easily or at the first signs of distress. No, it means things have gone resort. horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about rehab, the other thing about sobriety is that it, it doesn't really fix anything. And, you know, your husband has a ton of work to do and he's doing the ton of work that he has to do in sobriety after getting out of the rehab, but it's a ton of work for you too. And for the relationship, I think that's another, you know, misunderstood piece of this especially when they talk about these Hollywood stories, you know, so-and-so went to rehab. So now they're sober and everything's fine. Well, no, like the hard part is the after rehab part. And I'm wondering what, what, how is the relationship going? How are you doing? You talked about you keeping everything in order and you putting everything in place. Th those are codependent traits, as you know, how, how, how is working on your stuff and working on the marriage going post rehab? Um, it's going well. I will say that I probably am a gold medalist codependent. Like I <laughs> am really good at it. And it's been something that um, I've had to work on. Um, I'm just, Darlene Lancer is, uh, writes a lot about codependency. And this is, I'm going to read you her definition because I really like it. A codependent is someone who can't function from his or her innate self, but organizes thinking and behavior around an other person or persons process like drink, like uh, eating or gambling or substance. So with that um, definition, it means my husband's a codependent too. And he just organizes himself around drinking. And what I do is I organize myself around him and around, and around my children. So I'm addicted to people. He's addicted to alcohol. And, um, and that's how we both deal with our anxiety, depression, and 
stuff like that. And um, so he, as he's having his recovery from alcohol, I'm having my recovery from my addiction to people. <laughs> and, um, and the way that I have, you know, that, that's not easy. No. It's and, also and, it, and it gets, and it gets downplayed a lot, doesn't it? it? You know, the alcoholic's the one that needs the work and the help and the resources. Um, I'm just the spouse. Uh, you know, what do I need? That, that part gets downplayed and it's equally as important that you get the help that you need and figure this out and recover. It's, it's not a minor secondary thing. Right. And it's also like, um, he can give up alcohol, but I can't give up people. I, you know, the people that I love in my life, I'm going to continue to love in my life and I'm going to want to support them and care for them. But what does that look like when you're doing it from a healthy perspective instead of from a codependent perspective? And where is the line? And learning where that line is when I've crossed over from loving and supporting into codependency is something that I've had that is like a daily exercise for me. And, um, and what I've found as I've, I've found mindfulness practice has been very helpful because you get very attuned to, to how you're feeling in your body. And, um, and I, what I've found is over time, I've started to recognize there are these certain like feelings I get of stress when I'm taking on someone else's problem and just, and feeling like I need to solve it for them. And this can be as little as my children aren't doing assignments in school and suddenly I'm sending emails and trying to work out what the situation is with their classes when it's really something they should be doing. And it, it's insidious because you can convince yourself that you need to be doing this because this is what a loving mother would do or a loving spouse would do. And, it, and I can also play this game in my head where I say, oh, well, you aren't a very good mom if you don't do that. Sure. So it's, it's really paying attention to how I'm feeling. Am I, do I feel like I'm carrying the burden for more than just myself right now? And if, that, if I feel like that, then I know there's a place where I need to hand something over to somebody else to handle for themselves. We asked a question the other day, how, how do you know that you're doing okay? How do you know that you feel okay? And your answer was right along these lines and very insightful. You said that you know you're doing okay when you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you stay in, in your own lane and you're, 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 you're not trying to fix everyone else's problems for them. That's got to be a huge leap to get to that from the place where, you know, your husband is having um, suicidal ideation and everything is spiraling out of control. And you think the only thing you can do is exert more control over the situation to make it go better, to get from that place to the place where you are now, where knowing that you're doing okay is not not trying to solve everyone's problems. That's quite a process. And you've made a ton of progress in a short period of time. Yeah, that's been hard. It's been really hard. Um, and um, one of the things that I wanna say is, one of the things I've done was that, yes, there was a period where my husband was in rehab and I was solely in control and responsible for everything that was happening in our house and the things that were happening for our children. And I needed to be in that place and do, I'll do all that stuff. But then once we got to the place where he was home, um, I realized that I needed to start figuring out what I could let go of because we weren't in a 911 situation anymore. And, um, and part of that for me was that I needed to take a huge break. 
Like I needed to sleep when I needed to sleep, even if it was in the middle of the day. Like I wasn't going to beat myself up for taking the rest that I needed because I was exhausted. And I had about, I would say like the first, like he came home in early December. So I would say until a few weeks ago, I was, you know, regularly just laying on the couch <laughs> to, and, you know, just really doing whatever I needed to do to give myself rest because I had been so stressed out and um, going on walks with meditation music, just doing whatever I needed to do to relax and give myself a break. And it makes it easier to not, to not be overwhelmed when you take time for self-care. Absolutely. And, you know, we can't emphasize enough how important that is. The knots that you tie yourself up in when you're in these situations, whether you're the drinker or the, the person dealing with the drinker, it takes time to untie them. And we've just got to have, you know, we've, another societal thing. We've got to change the way we view self-care. It's not just bubble baths and, and needless pampering. There's, there's, there's real, you know, um, psychological uh, benefit to taking the time that we need to heal and recover and process and just be by ourselves. And so I'm glad that you, you did that and, and you find the value in it. It's yeah. also allowed you to, it's also allowed you to, to focus on a passion of yours. Here comes the awkward transition mm -hmm. that we're going to try to make. It sounds good because like doing something for yourself that you feel passionate about. Yeah. And that you feel that you can make a difference. I think adds to your self-esteem and your confidence and it just keeps you going. And, and it's not just focusing on fixing your family. Right. It's, it's focusing on, good. on something bigger. One of, one of I'm your so glad you said that. I just want to say this, that, you know, me working on my codependency isn't something that just started happening because my husband went to rehab. This is something that I've known has been an issue for me for a very long time. As I said, I grew up in an alcoholic household. So codependency is not new to me. I mean, I learned my amazing codependency skills from my mother, who's an amazing codependent herself. So um, this has been a, a very long thing that I've been working on. And one of the things that I realized about two years ago was that I did need something outside of my family. Um, and what that was, what that became for me was gun violence prevention. And the reason that that happened was because of the tragedy in Parkland. When that school shooting happened, um, my children were afraid to go to school. And that is not to say that mass shootings that happened before that didn't impact me or impact my family or my community because they did. But something about that shooting was different. And, um, and I decided I could no longer be on the sidelines and I needed to get involved. And so I became an activist for gun violence prevention. And it has been an amazing opportunity for me to use my voice and to fight for something that I feel is very important. And it's been a way that has been incredibly um, useful for me in terms of my own feelings of self-worth. Because when you are fighting for something that you believe in, um, it feels really good. And you don't feel so powerless. Because I will tell you, gun violence makes me feel very powerless. And so if I'm out there taking action, I feel less powerless. Absolutely. As we transition into this part of the conversation, I, I'm always reminded of 
something that Michael Jordan, you know, arguably the best basketball player ever, he said when whenever he was asked, you know, why doesn't he weigh in on politics? He would say, because both Democrats and Republicans, they both buy Nikes. They both buy shoes. <laughs> and so I don't want to get into politics because I don't want to turn people off. Likewise, Sherry and I don't want this this podcast to be political because we want people, no matter what their political views are, to feel support and love from the Intoxicated podcast. And both Democrats and Republicans are alcoholics and both Democrats and Republicans live with alcoholics. So for our listeners, if you're worried, oh God, here comes the political advertisement, they're gonna talk about gun control. Um, I, I wanna start off with a couple of facts that you shared with us, Jessica, that I think are, is, you know, it's not surprising if I'd really thought about it, but it's also important and fascinating. The first one is you shared with us that only really these big shootings and, this is a very timely conversation because Sherry and I live in Denver and just 20 minutes up the road in Boulder, um, less than a week ago, you know, there was a mass shooting in a, in a King Supers, a Kroger in, in Boulder. And so it's a timely conversation, but, but those shootings like that, the incidents that make the news and stay in the news for days and days and days and revamp the political discussion those are, what did you say, less than 1% of the gun violence is- Yeah, is they're a very violence? small percentage of gun violence in our country. Uh, over a hundred people are killed every day by gun violence and two thirds of those are suicide by gun. So the and true epidemic in our country is suicide. Um, and you know, that, that differs from state to state. Um, you know, in the state I live in, 50% of the gun deaths are, are suicide, but in states like Alaska and Montana, they're upwards of 70, 80%. So um, it's a huge issue. And the, you know, there's so many different things to concentrate on when you're looking at how to solve the gun violence epidemic. And the reason that I'm involved in the organization that I'm involved in, which is Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is because they're a nonpartisan organization that really focuses on the most common sense gun safety measures we can put in place to keep our kids and our communities safe. And one of the key things that we can do is um, make sure that there's a background check on the sale of every gun in our country. The fact of the matter is that the federal law that's in place now only requires, requires background checks on sales that, are, um, that go through gun dealers. So all the people that are doing private sales in states that don't require a background check on every sale, they're doing them without background checks. And so we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands, actually we're talking about millions. And um, I think it was in 2018, there were 1.2 million ads on one of the online arms dealer websites. And those were all happening privately. So Without background checks. Yeah. So, so if we just simply put in that, and I'm, if we're talking about nonpartisan stuff, this is a measure that's that's totally supported by both Republicans and Democrats and gun owners. 87% of, of gun owners support background checks. And what percent of uh, declared Republicans? You shared that with us too. That's high, right? 89%. Support background checks. So Almost basically what we're gun. talking about is Background checks every time, like don't give me excuses. Every yeah. time there's a background check, whether it's at a gun show, that's one of the loopholes, right? Yes. That they talk about a lot. Yeah. So, so if it's so widely supported by Democrats, Republicans, gun owners, obviously non-gun owners, 
what, why is like, what's the, what's the counter argument? Like take politics out. Tell me what the counter argument is. Why hasn't it taken place yet? Well, I think it's not the counter argument that's keeping it from happening. I think it's the money that the gun lobby gives to certain lawmakers and keeps them from voting um, in, in line with their constituents. There, there are lawmakers who are literally not voting the way their constituents want them to. And, you know, so, you know, so a huge part of what Moms Demand Action does is try to get people and elect people that are going to actually listen to their constituents. Um, so if there, if there aren't background checks, it's easier to make the transaction. So more transactions happen, so more guns get sold. So it's really literally as, it's as simple as pure greed on the part of the people selling the guns. Like, is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, it's the gun. Yes, it's it's the manufacturers and the gun lobbyists that are that are out there gaining from this. Nobody else is. Um, yeah, and then the other thing that most people don't, and, and so a lot of people say, well, there already are background checks. Well, yes, but the way I've just described it, we now know that millions of sales fall in a loophole, and there is no background check on those sales. So we really don't have background checks. The second thing that people don't know is about something called the Charleston loophole. And that means, so let's say um, you go to a gun dealer and you want to buy a gun and they run a background check and three days passes and this background check doesn't come back, hasn't cleared. That gun dealer now has, is, is they can just go ahead and do that sale. They don't have to wait. For that, for that background check to come back. And this happened in 2017 um, in um, South, uh, Charleston, South Carolina with the shooting at the church. So he, that shooter went in to buy a gun. His background check didn't come back. The gun dealer went ahead and sold him the gun. He went on to murder those innocent people. And it turned out that he was a prohibited person. That had they waited, the gun, that check would have come back and they would have known he, he was not allowed to purchase that gun. So all we need is a change in the law that says we need more time for the background check to come back. And for the most part, background checks come back within like a matter of seconds or minutes. It's, it's not that common for background checks to take that long to come back. And when they do, when it does take that long, it, it means they're four times more likely to come back with a problem with that person shouldn't have the gun anyway. So if we just institute, if we just change the law to make sure that it, we give a longer time for those background checks to come back, we're going to make sure that a bunch of prohibited people don't end up with guns. It's a very simple, simple change. You said, was it two thirds of the, the gun violence deaths or suicide? Is that the number you said, two thirds? Yes. Okay, so as it ties into mental health, which alcoholism is a mental illness, Talk about the red flag laws. This is this gives the the local government the ability to temporarily take someone's gun if they're you know showing signs of of having some severe mental distress. Are are those is that a federal the red flag laws is that a federal law or are they just spotty here and there? Is that one of the things that you work on in your organization? Yeah. So one of the huge things that we work on is safe storage and. Um, red flag laws, both of those things combined are really effective in helping prevent suicide. Um, so one is that if somebody, when people do own guns, they need to keep them stored safely. 
And what that means is they need to keep them stored, locked, unloaded, and with their ammunition stored separately. That's one. And that, that is really important for keeping children safe. One of mm -hmm. the most important things that I learned from doing this work was that there's over, there's almost 4.6 million households out there with guns and children where the guns are not stored safely. That means that children in those homes have access to loaded guns. That is really scary. Um, so I, I now call or, or text whatever parents before my kids hang out at their house if I don't know them that well to make sure that if they do have firearms that they're, stole, they're stored safely because I don't, I have now learned that there, and I met too many parents who've lost their children because they've played at someone else's house where there was an unsecured firearm. And My, so that's one of the things we do is we educate about safe storage. If you're gonna own a gun, store it safely, simply. Um, two is if you know someone that's in crisis and that you know they have access to firearms, and you live in a state that allows this, you can make sure that, the, that those firearms are removed from that person's possession while they're in crisis so that they can't make that split second decision to do something that they can't take back. Yeah, that's, that's so important. And I think you know, that what brings the headlines or what grabs the attention of people on both sides of the issue, it's such a small percentage of, of what you, groups like you and what these, what we call right common sense laws that pretty much everyone's in favor of are intended to prevent. You know, when you talk about securing gun firearms, when I was a kid, this is, I'm not making this up. My best, I lived in Indiana and my best friend lived on a farm and I spent a lot of time at his house and I picked up a gun in the corner of his kitchen once and pointed it at him. It was a I don't know what it was, a rifle of some sort. It was loaded and no safety. And, you know, I was an eighth of an inch from killing this kid. And, I, you know, I was middle school age. I didn't know any better. But it haunts me to this day that I, you know, I thought it was, I for sure it would be unloaded. Why would we have an, a loaded gun in the corner of the kitchen? Um, but yeah, I, I can totally totally empathize with what you're talking about with the accidental deaths, the kids, um, you know, the need to protect people with in mental health crisis from themselves. It all, it all makes so much sense. It all is such common sense. What's, what's really, I mean, it's got to haunt you since you work so, so deeply, you're so deeply involved in the issue. When, when a, something like happens, like what just happened in Boulder and everyone gets their you know, runs to their corner and starts screaming back and forth at each other. Those that are not in favor of the common sense, you know, gun laws that we're talking about, those are the people that stand to profit from, um, from leaving things the way they are. And they immediately start screaming about the second amendment. So Jessica, as someone who is deeply involved in it, you know, I want your honest opinion. Like, are, are you, in favor of taking away everyone's guns and um, abolishing the second amendment? Is that your ultimate goal? And you're just pretending that you wanna help people with mental health issues and you wanna protect kids? No, I'm not interested in getting rid of the second amendment. I think that everyone, that we do have a right to own guns. I think that, but with that right comes tremendous responsibility. 
to store those guns safely and to own them safely. And then when you talk to most gun owners, they will tell you they believe the same thing, that there, there are responsible gun owners out there and they don't want people that aren't going to be responsible owning guns or treating guns irresponsibly. Um, so I have no interest in abolishing the second amendment. I have no interest in removing people's right to own guns and neither does Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. That's not what we stand for. Um, we just want people to take that right seriously and, and act responsibly. And in a lot of cases, maybe people just don't have the education that they need. Maybe they don't understand that um, when you, you know, maybe they don't understand that the suicide in our country is 10 times higher than in other countries that are same, that are, you know, equal to us. Um, maybe they don't understand that if you have a gun in the home, you're three times more likely, you know, to die by suicide by gun than people who don't. Um, maybe they just don't understand the facts. And so we just need to educate people. And, and I think people are fearful. They're fearful that, you know, there's this argument that if we put background checks in place, it's going to lead to a gun registry. And that's just not the case. That, gun that registries goes back are, to the gun registries are actually illegal. Yeah, yeah, that's not the case. Um, and then just, I just think that probably a lot of people that listen to this podcast might have families, children. And so when they're thinking about gun ownership and they're thinking about guns and children, I want them to consider the fact that almost every state in our nation has rules and laws regulating the safety of pools. If you have a pool in most states, there are certain safety precautions you have to put in place with fencing and things of that nature. Only six states and Washington DC have rules that require safe storage of firearms. And the fact of the matter is that more children die every year from unintentional shootings and suicide by a gun than children who drown in a pool. So yeah. firearms are the second leading cause of death in this country to children and teens. So we, we just need to make some simple common sense changes to keep our children and our community safe. How has your personal experience impacted your passion around this issue, specifically since you experienced suicidal ideation with your husband? It must make it more real and more tangible and scarier. To, to, you're, you're closer to being able to envision what that, that desperate moment when a firearm is readily available and hasn't been taken away from someone who's exhibited mental health you know, issues, um, it must make it really real for you to, to picture how, how easy that moment can be tragic. Oh gosh, when we were in that like 24 hour period where he was experiencing the most suicidal ideation and he was at his most distraught, I was so incredibly grateful that we are not firearm owners because I knew that that would be a huge risk to him and his safety. And I was, I just, it was, it was really in the forefront of my mind um, because unfortunately I know several people who have lost loved ones to suicide by firearm when they were in a low moment. And, um, and I was just so grateful that I knew that that wasn't a risk for him. And um, yeah, it was extremely real for me. And I felt so much compassion 
um, and empathy for people that are in this situation and maybe do have firearms in their home and have that added complication of having to deal with that and you know securing that so that their loved one is safe. Absolutely. Jessica, you're, you're working on yourself. You're working on something that you're passionate about. You, you know, you're working for the health of your family. Your husband's doing a lot of work too in his own recovery. Can you tell us how's, how's the relationship going now, several months after he's returned from rehab? Do you guys feel like you're making progress? Do you feel hopeful? Yeah, I feel really hopeful. I mean, one of the most wonderful things that happened in his second rehab was that there was an amazing family therapy element and we had some really powerful sessions with the family therapist and we were really I was able to say things that I had never felt comfortable saying and one of the places where I've needed to heal the most was in being comfortable speaking what's true for me part of my codependency is to always couch things in terms of what I think is better for other people rather than saying what is best for me because I have this deep underlying feeling of insecurity that if I tell you what I need, you can easily just ignore that. And then I get rejected and feel hurtful. But if I tell you what I think you need, you're much more likely to do it because you maybe you care more about yourself than you do about me. I don't know. So one of the things that's been so powerful in my healing and then are the healing of our relationship is that I've learned and I've had, and I'm continuing to learn because this is a daily struggle for me to be really honest about what I'm going through and to speak about it from what I need, yeah. which is really scary because when you say what you need, the other person has an opportunity to say no, or I don't want to, or they don't care. Um, and part of that has been learning to love myself in a way that means that if someone says no to me or that they can't do something that I need, that that is not a reflection on me, that I am a whole person, that I am worthy of love and acceptance, regardless of how someone else responds to me and my needs. And that I have every right to ask for those things and they have every right to say no if they want to. And we're both still totally valid, lovable people. Well, you hit the nail right on the head there. You are as lovable as they come. Sherry and I love you very much, Jessica. Your, uh, your progress is just so apparent. Um, your vulnerability, your honesty, everything you've shared with us today. Um, I just can't, can't thank you enough. Thanks for joining us here on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to say, though, your fear was that you weren't going to have anything great and worthy to say coming on this podcast. And I feel like you blew that out of the water. You educated us. So thank you very yeah, much. What a powerful conversation. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for being here with us, Jessica. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.